0: The Hand of Glory. In occult lore, the hand was cut from the corpse of a hanged thief and covered in virgin wax and the dead man's tallow. It is said to open any door, but how did the Hand of Glory come to have its fate entwined in the mysteries at the heart of Wormwood? Discover the secrets of this arcane appendage once attached to Dr. Xander Crow as we present Wormwood and the Five Fingers of Glory five thrilling tales of mystery and suspense that span the ages.
1: Wormwood and the Five Fingers of Glory, Chapter Two, Memento Mori, written and read by Paul Montgomery, with humblest regards to Edgar Allan Poe and Bram Stoker. 12th May, 1881. Dearest Celeste, I find myself finally in the Sicily of your memories. Fresh oranges rush to my ankles in the harbor surf, tiny fallen suns, just as you said they might. Raphael, my guide and our cousin of some removal, gathered them up in his shirt tails. Pulling a razor from his satchel, he offered me one of the splendid spheres. I declined, suggesting that any oranges I might enjoy, indeed, any fruits at all, should come from our father's orchard. He sheared vibrant flesh, leaving it to float in the crystalline waters, making short work of what remained. For the first time in our long journey I was relieved you were not with me, big sister. So obscene was our cousin's mastication. We took leave of our host, bidding farewell to the miserable barge. We walked barefoot through the shanty town and its jolly marketplace where we were greeted only with smiles. Dark-faced men hauled fish and casks of spring wines. Hindus in their kerchiefs held fine fabrics to my cheek. The earth was warm on the soles of my feet. Everyone walks barefoot here. Even what bags I did carry, for we had many porters, felt all the lighter in such a walking dream. How could it be possible, this negligence of my faculties? I have tread upon these sands, these pebbles, these streets before, but I retain not a glimmer of this wondrous island or the plantation which bears our crest. All of this place, this Sicily, is new, is pristine to my senses. They say I learned to walk here, was just beginning to wobble about when Mother ushered us to that ship and unto our new life in England. I savor this place now as if reclaiming those years since. Such times we could have had under this roiling sun, awash in these waves. Although I am a guest in this place, I truly feel as a sailor returned from weary sojourns to his waiting home. Today I am a modern Ulysses, if frail and bedraggled. If you'll permit, I offer Raphael as my shield-bearing steward, only just released from Circe's hex. He may grunt and cavort like swine, but his is a fine old soul, simple in his pleasures and generous in his dealings, and always a song on his lips. The rest of our people, Raphael's many brothers and sisters, are much the same. They love this land and this life. I see our father's face in ancient Tommaso, who now resides at the head of the table here in Palermo. He has provided for me a soft bed and all the comforts of nobility for however long I choose to reside in his company. My best to mother and the scores of kin I left at the docks those many weeks ago. Gather them up as if they were floating oranges and squeeze them all from me. I think of you as I rest my weary form upon this porch and look out upon the swaying orchard. I partake of my first orange, and know now why Raphael could not bear to wait for land before tasting the sun. Yours smiling, Ambrose. 25th May, 1881. Dearest Celeste, I was overjoyed this morning to receive your response, however brief, I assure you that it is no trouble to continue writing you with reports of my adventures abroad. Indeed, it is my pleasure to do so. I am saddened, of course, that Mother does not wish to look upon my correspondence, but with the unpleasantness of the Christmas holiday still lingering, I understand her reluctance. Do keep these letters, for the time will come when she again seeks word of my frivolous escapades. She need only beckon for my return, and I shall commandeer the swiftest ship in the harbor, and make haste to her side. But perhaps that is a distant day. As has been my custom on this journey, I spent my early days in Sicily seeking out a proper walking stick. I am a fickle pioneer, and it took near on a week of auditioning. When I was satisfied that I had found the sturdiest crook in the Mediterranean, I bid Raphael plan a walkabout through the hills. The grand schemer hurried off to make arrangements, and perhaps to escape the game of horseshoes, he was quickly losing to old Tommaso. The next day, Raphael roused me from my sleep in the early morning to hike a ways inland for a picnic lunch. After i dressed, I was alarmed to find a veritable gypsy caravan awaiting me at the gate. What Raphael deems a picnic we might call a wedding feast. Taking up my new walking stick, I joined the country march. I had but nibbled at the crust of Sicily before this day, and I was ready to have my meal of it. I was introduced to a local woman called Teresa. Like Raphael, this girl was quick to laugh, of constant good cheer and content to while away the day in the grass, absorbing the noonday sun. The women here are pleasantly round, tending to their farms and partaking of the earth's bounty little by little throughout the workday. I asked Raphael if he intended to marry this girl, but he slapped my back and whispered that he had brought her here for me. I admit now that I may have reacted hotly, stomping off from the group. Of course, I meant no offense to Teresa, but I fear that was how it was perceived. I am at a disadvantage in that I was unable to explain in her own language that I am still a young man and have no intention of making a home. I wonder whether Mother had anything to do with this, if she gave any instruction to our cousins that I should be tended to in such a manner. Such are the concerns of a dedicated bachelor. But I must recount a new discovery. I followed the laughter of children to a clearing. Above this clearing rose a grassy hill. The boys had mounted the shrugged earth and were playing in a small graveyard. Another cathedral in an island prickly with steeples. This was not Raphael's church, but when I described it to him later, his expression became somber. I took his big hand in mine and begged him, ''What is this place, Raphael?'' ''It is where the dead wait.'' He answered. Yes, the graveyard, said I. It seemed out of character that Raphael would be fearful of a cemetery, but then his grin returned and he said, Not the graveyard. Under. Under the graves? What could he have meant? I released his hand for a moment, but quickly reached for it again. Without thinking, I asked that he take me to this place. He considered this for a moment, nodded, and left me to a restless night. I will report to you soon of the further unraveling of this queer island. Yours, Ambrose. 1st June, 1881. Dearest Celeste, Such things I have seen. As promised, Raphael arranged that we meet a custodian of the cathedral on the hill. We left as the sun was sinking into the sea. Together we made our way up the slopes, humming Raphael's nameless song. The cleric was an old man, not much taller than the headstones of the graveyard. He spoke with Raphael in hushed tones, never meeting his gaze. When I bowed in greeting, he turned away, throwing open the cathedral doors. High above, Christ on his gnarled crucifix, gazed into the shadowy rafters toward paradise. Or was he looking away from us? We were led down a flight of stairs, seemingly hewn of the chalk-white earth. The air was stale there and cold. As we descended deeper into the darkness, I envisioned the head of the world turned downward, revealing the canal of its cavernous ear. We were lurking into the very skull of creation, a place of memories, of secrets. I soon realized that we were indeed journeying to a distance beneath even the deepest of graves. Ahead of me, Raphael stumbled for just a moment, but it was enough to expel all the breath from my lungs. I reached out for his shoulder, He laughed at my nervousness and began to hum again his soothing pastoral melody. I composed myself, watching always the curve of the stair before me. Raphael's song, stirring from so deep in his belly, reverberated off the stone walls, never faltering. Then we were upon it. I tell you, sister, it was at once grand and morose, a vast assembly of figures against the walls. There, in this hall, scores of men stood still as trees on a windless night. I became ever conscious of the air in this chamber. It seemed only to move between my lips and those of my two hosts. We were all who had need of it, for these men, these countless occupants of the dark, were long dead. At first all I knew was the vastness of the collection. There is no fixed account of their number, but surely it makes for a village. I became aware of their faces, taut and final agonies, contorted also, I am told, from the leathering of their flesh. The cleric raised his torch, and I nearly collapsed, for above the line of corpses floated a second and third row of bodies. Some were bracketed tightly to the stone, and others slumped in alcoves. I beheld a gallery of the dead. They stood crooked yet attentive, a silent audience. Yes, I felt as if I were the spectacle to this motley assembly." These were no mere skeletons, but browned and breathless caricatures. Those faces, with no modesty to conceal their teeth, they grinned like wilting sycophants. Raphael and the cleric turned to me, and I discovered that, in spite of myself, I had been laughing for some time. It may seem queer to reflect on it now, but in their strained expressions I found a weird form of comedy. I was reminded of Mr. Calderley's shop and the marionettes that hung there in the windows. you recall the old wooden bishop and his tiny rosary? He resides here at full height amongst his shriveled brethren. Through Raphael I asked the old man a single question, Why? He gave no answer. I looked upon a creche laden with straw. In it reclined a doll of such perfection, a young boy with shimmering golden locks. Why should a doll be left in such a dismal place? Raphael crossed himself. I lost my breath. What I beheld was not a doll, but the body of a once resilient boy of about five years, preserved perhaps for the remainder of eternity in a state of beatific grace. I began to weep, for I was convinced then of the presence of angels. After some time traversing the catacombs, the cleric returned us to the stairs. I profess that I have never seen a bigger moon looming in a clearer sky. Raphael guided me back to the property, and we walked in silence. When he left me at the door of my room, I asked him if he would want his own body to be kept in such a way. He shook his head, laughing without a sound. No, he said. I am not nearly so important. With that, we bid each other good night. Of all the dread things I'd seen that night, I thought about the boy and his unblemished skin. That perfect skin. To be forever a child. Your loving brother, Ambrose. 23rd June 1881 Dearest Celeste, I am disheartened that you have yet to send further responses to my reports. Fearful that my most recent missives have somehow become lost in their journey to your door, I include facsimiles, as best as I could recreate from memory. Please send word of the family's activities, for I miss them so. I do hope that you and William are well. Surely William has found a replacement to fill my station at the mill especially given the season. What if not, I might send along my recommendations. What mischief have the children devised for the holidays? They would certainly love it here, most especially the beaches. Ah, but I must scold you. In all of your recollections of our youth in Sicily, you never mention the oppressive heat of the summer months. All the candles in all the cathedrals are keen to melt without so much as a flicker. I've taken to wearing Raphael's old garments as they are much lighter than my northern attire. I roam the marketplace again this morning. The people have come to know not just my face but my name as well. I am Ambrose of Sicily. Ambrose, the islander. It is a good life. Tommaso's wife is calling us to supper, so I must lay down my pen. Yours, Ambrose. 9th July, 1881. Dearest Celeste. My thoughts turn again to the boy in the crypt. What affliction led to his demise, and when did he expire? What had become of his parents? I imagined them young, grief-stricken, holding each other tightly as they hurled themselves into the sea. Then I pictured them as in old age, creased with wrinkles and the layering of misery at the loss of a child so long ago. Or were they among the dead, buried in the hill? Did I unknowingly spy them frozen in their final moments, tucked into the walls beneath the cathedral? Could they see their boy from their place? I inquired for the child's story at Tommaso's table. None could tell me his name, but there was some debate of his village. His family, a good family, traveled many miles to attend mass in the cathedral on the hill. Raphael's eldest sister suggested that they were related to the clerics there. So that is how he came to be in the place, said Raphael. We should be so lucky. But what of the parents? Did anyone survive him? All dead, said Raphael's sister. This was the end of our discussion. Tommaso quieted us, for such talk was impolite. We broke bread in silence. Yours, Ambrose. Undated. Dearest Celeste, You may not recognize my hand, may find my penmanship suddenly crude and unfamiliar but I assure you that I remain ever yours, your little brother, Ambrose. I have much to relate. I regret that I was forced to depart from the estate, and even now I write to you from a vessel departing the warm seas of Sicily. I pause now to steal one final look at her shrinking shores, for I fear it will be my last glimpse of our heritage. I must explain how it came to pass." Two evenings ago I was roused from my sleep by the voice of an angel. To be clear, the boy in the crypt was calling to me, imploring my aid. He reminded me so much of Edward, a name I agreed never again to mention in our communication, but it was little Eddie who I heard in the night. He was alone there with the sneering devils of the catacombs. I dressed quickly and hurried into the night, taking my walking stick and Raphael's satchel He leaves it there by the door so careless. Imagine the delight of a bandit to find such tools at his disposal, there at the gate. I knew the way to the cathedral well, for I have visited many nights in these last weeks. I had never dared to request entry without Raphael's company, but I confess that I was drawn to the place. But this night, I was intent on doing the work of angels. Rapping on the door, I called out to the cleric. I knew to be there worshipping. He was confused at the sight of me. I must have been a fright, so frenzied as I was. Our business was quick. In moments I was descending the stairs, unafraid of the dark, unafraid of the contorted faces awaiting me in the chamber below. I was the great protector, a shepherd with his holy rod. Where had I misplaced my walking stick? Time changed that night, and moments are lost to me. Then I was swallowed into the stillness of the gallery, audience again to the leering ghouls shackled to the stone. His captors. Little Eddie slept there in the thick of it. They would have him no longer. I lifted him from the creche and held him close. He said not a word. A mass of straw tangled in spider silk trailed from the back of his head. I was quick to brush it away. Tufts of his golden hair fell to the stone floor, and I suddenly felt a sharpness in my abdomen. I crept back toward the stairs, and through some trick of the light it appeared that the dead had all turned to appraise me. Then I heard the voice. You cannot undo what has been done. I looked for the form of the old cleric, but I saw no one on the stairs. Then came a tapping, as of fingers against parchment. There in the shadows I beheld a dark hand. It stood out amongst its fellows in that it was no withered talon. This hand was resilient, plump with lifeblood. It hung there like a glove from the leathery arm of a corpse. There was nothing remarkable about the figure other than the dangling hand. Not even the boy's skin was so perfect and alive. What good can come by your hand? I held the boy closer. I heard a sickening crunch of brittle matter, and his head lolled harshly to one side. I gathered it up, securing him. I gently brushed the hair from his face, but to my horror, I had scraped his cheek too roughly, "'revealing the bone that resided beneath. "'Yours is a hand that takes. "'The fingers of that dark hand drummed against the wall. "'I looked up to see it writhing against the tendons of its fleshless wrist. "'I do not think I knew what I saw. "'Yours is a wicked hand indeed. "'How could it have known? "'How does a man long dead in a foreign crypt know of my transgressions, "'of my frailties? "'Do the damned truly know all sins?' "'Who are you?' I demanded, not of the corpse, but of the hand itself. "'I know what you are.' "'I set the boy down on the floor. "'He was limp driftwood. "'He was a boy no longer asleep, but dead. "'Dead as he had always been. "'Though through my carelessness, he was imperfect. "'Something within me lurched. "'I realized then that I had not looked upon my own hands since leaving England. "'Least of all the one. "'I am aware of it, of course.' I have written to you, and I have fed myself, but I could not look upon the hand that had done those things. O Edward, at once it was all I could see, my vile hand, my sin. I have sailed the wide world, but there was no vessel so swift that I could evade my own limb. O Celeste, your youngest son, not so much older than the broken boy before me, ruined by my hand, and all the worse for having lived to remember it. This hand. What good can come by it now? More sickening than the sound of the dead boy's splintering neck were the sounds of the dark hand freeing itself from its wrist, then slipping down the length of rag and bone below. It lay there prone and writhing like a blind worm forced out of its warren by the rain. A trade. It was not such a difficult choice. I recall the coldness of Raphael's razor there in the satchel where I needed it, I recall the first delicate cut and the warmth that spilled out. I recall my puzzlement at the whiteness of the bone. Had I expected black? Last of all was the red which devoured me. The turning of the chamber itself. The clacking of the nails of my new appendage as it dragged itself toward me. They found me there on the stone floor. What have you done? What have you done? The cleric was dead at the door. Someone had struck him about the head with my walking stick. I ran so very fast and so very far. When I reached the water, I did not know the place. I had arrived in some other port. I had nothing with which to pay for food or shelter or passage, but a man waiting in the waters told me by the looks of me I had strong hands and could be of use to him. This was the first time I looked upon it, this new hand. It no longer talks to me. It is content to feel the sunlight again. It and my other limb are in the service of this sailor called Halo. We will do well. We will do good. As ever yours, Ambrose.
0: Wormwood, a serialized mystery is a podcast production of Habit Forming Films, LLC. Original music compositions by Todd Hodges. Introduction and credits read by Joe J. Thomas. The Wormwood writing staff includes David Acampo, Jeremiah Allen, Rob Allspaw, Paul Montgomery, Jeremy Rogers, and Tiffany K. Whitney. Wormwood created by David Acampo and Jeremy Rogers. Copyright 2009. Wormwood cannot be reproduced in part or whole without the express written consent of its creators. For more information on the cast, creators, and individual episodes, please visit us on the web at www.wormwoodshow.com. Thank you for listening, and welcome to town.